Bomb by Millard Vern Gordon. The Dowerful Mountains were located at the very rim of the visible half of the moon. Sometimes they're out of sight, sometimes they swing back into view as the satellite wobbles in its path. They are high, gaunt, and jagged, huge peaks jutting up from the cold gray horizon against the black of the sky. And behind the Dowerfuls lies the blind spot of Earth's heavens. No one has ever seen what lies behind that range. It was towards the Dowerfuls, oddly enough, that terrestrials calculated the comet of 1943 would go. At first, when it had been discovered out around the orbit of Jupiter, heading towards the sun, there was considerable uproar, for it seemed as if its path was in, would intersect directly with that of Earth. For a while, astronomers talked excitedly and secretly amongst themselves, afraid of creating panic. Then their common sense asserted itself. They knew that the panic they'd feared was anything but likely. The world was already as panicky as it could be, what with all five continents engaged in a titanic war, the bombardment of cities with destruction of nations, a routine occurrence. So the news got out and made page nine, along with the tail end of the daily casualty lists. No one gave it a stir, save for a few fanatics who didn't matter in the first place. But it wasn't until after the comet had passed the orbit of Mars that the astronomers were able to breathe a bit easier. They incalculated, by some chicanery of international maneuvering, the triangulations from three parts of the world mutually at war, that the comet would not hit Earth. It would come close, however, to the moon. It would, in fact, graze the moon right about where the Dowerfuls were located. This was highly interesting. The astronomers thought it might be that part of the comet's tail would be lost and it would remain to give the moon a tenuous atmosphere again for a brief while. Then they made a really startling discovery. The comet was actually ablaze. It was a ball of fire, a blazing torch, a fragment of some exploding sun or nova star still burning. This didn't make the situation dangerous, they thought, but it did heighten the interest. No such comet had been heretofore recorded. Its fiery tail would probably burn the topmost peaks of the lunar mountains as it passed. Still, there was no concern until another interesting, also previously unrecorded phenomenon was noted. A new formation coming to sight just behind the Dowerfuls. At first, they thought it was another peak that hadn't been noticed before, but after a while, they realized that it was growing. A sort of peak a long white cylindrical mass towering above the mountains and overshadowing them. A curious, twisted appearance seemed to mark its surface consistency. The base was lost in mystery behind the Dowerfuls. The strange formation extending a bit further curved around somewhat and stuck out from the side of the lunar sphere quite distinctly. The astronomers now observed that end of the strange protuberance would be in the path of the comet, it would undoubtedly set a fire by its passage. It was not until the comet had almost arrived that an astronomer in Arizona suddenly realized that the strange mass had all the appearance of a giant cotton-impregnated fuse, which could not fail to be touched off by the approaching mass of flame. But there was nothing he could do about it, so he stated his job and calculated M for A, chuckling quietly and somewhat madly to himself. Wish I had milk and all I got water and a couple of dimes and a silver half dollar Steal from Paul, about to check to Peter I got a parking ticket so I took the parking meter, I'm broke 
Locust Radio. Welcome to episode 18 of Locust Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Laura Fairschultz. I'm a different host, Tish Turrell. And I'm yet another host, Adam Turrell. And our producers include Amia Soul and Alexander Billet. Locust Radio is the almost monthly podcast of the almost quarterly Locust Review Journal and a realist and socialist art journal uh, published in anachronistic newspaper format. To subscribe, join the Locust Review Patreon. You can find the link at locustreview.com. Please subscribe. We're particularly desperate. Our opening reading was Tish Turrell reading Donald Volheim's The Bomb, originally published in Science Fiction Quarterly in 1942 under the pen name Millard Vern Green. Volheim was one of the Michaelists that we'll be discussing today on the show. We will have later in the show other Michaelist and Futurian readings, along with the readings from our own Adam Ray Aikens and Tish Turrell from Locust Review 7 and 9. The reason for all this Michaelist sci-fi was because today's episode was going to be an interview with Sean Cashbaugh and Joe Shapiro, both of whom have researched and written about different periods of socialist and communist influence in American science fiction. I'm afraid that Sean got sick, and so we're putting off that episode for a bit. So instead, today we're going to discuss the theme of Locust Review 9, Wars Beneath, Atomization, Alienation, and Excavating Futures in an Age of Conflict. But we're still relentlessly reading Michaelis sci-fi in this episode in a weird hauntological gesture about the lost future of this particular episode of Locust Radio, uh, the episode of apocalyptic time lost in between intent and actuality. Our opening music was I'm Broke. Hmm, I can relate to that. From the Whistle Pigs. We'll have more from the Whistle Pigs in a second, in the second patron half of the show. You can find their music at whistlepigs.bandcamp.com. We'll also have music from These Magnificent Tapeworms, Omniasol, and Flowers of Evil later in the show as well. A quick note on some fundraisers we'd like y'all to consider reporting. Supporting. Reporting. Don't report them. Yeah, please don't I'll report them. Anyway, the, the Starbucks workers here in Carbondale have started a solidarity fund because management is targeting them for voting in the union, reducing their hours and therefore cutting their aggregate wages below what is needed to pay the rent and buy food and health care and so on. So if you can, please donate to them at GoFundMe.com slash F slash Carbondale hyphen baristas hyphen solidarity hyphen fund. Also, inflation has hit us at Logos Review, increasing our website costs, our printing costs, and our shipping costs. So to make up for the difference, we're doing a Locust Review inflation fundraiser. And you can find that at www.gofundme.com slash F as in Frank slash Locust hyphen review hyphen inflation hyphen fundraiser. <laughs> Lastly, Adam and I are organizing the annual fundraiser for the Born Again Labor Museum. You can find that at www.gofundme.com slash F as in Frank <laughs> slash annual hyphen born hyphen again hyphen labor hyphen museum hyphen fun hyphen drive. <laughs> I got the hard one. 
<laughs> we'll also put uh, links to all of these at the top of the Locust View website, locustreview.com, and in the show notes to make it really, really easy for you to help us, please. Yeah, so you don't have to type them all in, all those hyphens. Yeah. <laughs> so as, yeah, we'll put that in the show notes, like Tish said, to make it easier for folks to find. So as we said, we were going to talk about, uh, you know, uh, late 19th, early 20th century and uh, mid-century socialist and communist influence in science fiction with our guests. But unfortunately, one of our guests got sick. So we've had to put off that episode uh, because the pandemic is not over, despite what uh, you know we're being told, which is related to the, the thing we decided we would talk about this episode, the editorial for Locust Review 9, which we're putting together right now. So hopefully in the next few weeks, it'll be out. Um, and the title of that is Wars Beneath, Atomization, Alienation, and Excavating Futures in an Age of Conflict. And it touches on both like the wars and imperialist conflict that's happening right now, as well as this feeling of being under siege in, in everyday life, which is, of course, related to things like catching COVID suddenly again for the second or third time or yeah. um, the other things that are happening. So. Uh, let's let's throw open that discussion. I think there's a lot of great work in the next Locust uh, Nine, um, including like uh, poems from Mike Lineweaver, like uh, uh, that were was featured in the last episode of Locust Review, uh, Locust Radio. But anyway, let, let's open up that feeling of being under siege. It's a happy episode. <laughs> it's a very happy episode. Very much under siege. Uh. Yeah, I, I think that the, the editorial is particularly good, although the editorials are always good in Locust Review. I'm not just saying that because I'm a part of it. Uh, I actually don't have anything to do with the editorials. I think they're written by uh, greater pens than mine. But um, uh, yeah, it's it, it particularly hits at, at the the different things going on right now and how they trigger this sense of being under siege and, and the war raging around us. Yeah. No, it really does feel like that. I mean, for example, right now on the platform we're using to record, it's dropped Tish off the call again, uh, uh, causing us difficulties right now in the here and now, but it's, it's just a tiny example of like the hundreds of things that happen. Um, um, every day that make you feel like you're under under siege obviously much worse like let's say you need a medical procedure and you have to spend 12 hours on the phone with the insurance company about it uh, or whatever on top of going to work and everything so as we were saying the feeling of being under siege and like you know it's like that thing we've joked about before about like you're carrying all this baggage and you trip over something small and overreact i feel like that's how i'm about the computer glitch that just happened yeah you know, like it was like too yeah. much on top of, you know, existence, you know, work and responsibilities and the constant degradation of everything, you know, although mm. there has been some humor with that, like Twitter imploding and so on. But yeah. So, so like your computer, which is newer and better than mine, uh-huh. stopped working. Now you're in here recording. It was, me. it was just this website. Everything else was fine for me, but it can't handle Zencaster, which is really fucking irritating because like you said it's a really nice computer but of course the universe is the capitalist uh, the capitalism of the universe is only capable of delivering disappointment and rage 
Yeah, no kidding. Well, there's uh, there's that sense of um, the overreacting. That's actually uh, like there's this collective PTSD amongst people who are really feeling the the strain of things, where where there's a buildup of of um, frustrations, and all it takes is something to set it off, and you set off like a like a domino effect. All all of the shit and all the anger that you feel comes out. Uh, over one smaller incident but because it's it's a trigger to a lot of other incidents and there's this um i was looking at uh the election results speaking of disasters or whatever um and uh they were they had these polls i don't know if it was on cnn or msnbc like one of the only times i watched that's that those those uh corporate news channels but um it it said it, the question was do you think that things are going okay and you know one percent one percent I mean it couldn't have been more apt said oh yes everything is great uh, I, I you know referring to um, the 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 inflation and and everything going on right now and then there was this you know this large chunk 30% or whatever things are going really terrible and uh for those people things are going really terrible and it does take just you know you know having uh one extra bill that you can't pay or several extra bills you can't pay whatever just triggering off this um this sense of either hopelessness or frustration or lashing out or whatever means it takes for your particular situation. Yeah. I mean, it, like you're, you're, uh, you mentioning like people like boiling over that reminds me. And we mentioned it in the, uh, in the editorial, like the, I go to the public freakouts Reddit a lot. Oh, and, uh, the one that the, the one that has been amusing, cause usually it's just awful. Um, the one that's been amusing was some poor guy, um, getting upset because like he slips on his really nice driveway and he falls oh. and then he kicks the shit out of the tree near his car and is like cursing the driveway the whole time and it's like you could tell that that's not what he's angry about I mean mm -hmm. that's like the amusing the amusing one usually it's like you know people like losing their shit on some McDonald's worker because everything's going wrong in their life but this is the person who's like available to them to yeah. destroy when really they should both be running down the mcdonald's together theoretically i'm not advising people do that it's like that old uh comic or the, the old uh saturday evening post i think uh painting series where the guy gets yelled at by his boss then he yeah. yells at his wife hmm. and then the wife yells at the kid and the kid yells at the house cat except yeah. that it's like everybody all the time because so much of life has become intolerable like hmm. to, to you know like what's so interesting like that in con and that's not to say there aren't good parts of existence or whatever or mm. that every moment is like that but it's so interesting in contrast to the democrats congratulating themselves on only losing not losing the midterms as badly as they thought they would mm, right um, um which is you know we can go into why maybe that is and so on why they didn't do as historically bad as parties do in the midterms it seems to be um in states where um basic democratic functionality and abortion were immediate issues where the democrats did better but i think like what what we wrote both in the call for submissions for locust review nine and in the editorial i think it's worth like 
quoting just a little bit. Um, it's becoming increasingly clear to us as artists and workers that everyday life is becoming intolerable. As we noted elsewhere, there are 4.2 million people on the public freakouts Reddit sharing hundreds of videos every day of people losing their shit in public. Mental health problems and suicides are on the rise. Incidents of road rage are increasing. There's a slight increase in crime, a fact that's exaggerated by the right wing for reactionary ends. Politics is polarized between an ineffectual liberalism increasingly fascist Republican Party, even as the political center congratulates, congratulates, Craig congratulates, what? Congratulates. Congratulates yeah. itself. Oh my God. <laughs> on the indeterminate outcome of the midterm elections, reproductive rights and queer liberation are threatened to roll back. Stochastic terrorism. God, I'm having trouble pronouncing things. Stochastic. You I know, I know. Everything's yeah, all right. right. <laughs> Has become constant. Official politics seems to shrug off the deaths of moviegoers and children, just like it shrugs off the hundreds of people who still die every day from COVID-19. Inflation gave most of us a 10% pay cut over the past year, but the amount of work we are required to do amounts to a constant speed up that fuels things like organizing drives in retail, Amazon and Starbucks, as well as the aborted railroad strike. There's this prevailing sense of being under siege felt in our bones it turns our stomachs inside out. It chokes our arteries with anxiety. And then we quote Michael Lineweaver's poem, Someday Massacre, that was read in the last episode of Locust Radio. In just the beginning of that poem, and then I'll stop talking. I, I'm almost positive that I'm dying. Don't laugh. It's not a joke. I haven't told my wife yet, and I expect at your age you should be able to keep a secret. I'm away from home, working graveyards, checking soft hotels and burned out, punched out apartment complexes. The someday massacre is still somewhere up ahead. I don't know how far. Mm. And it, no one's listening. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, go ahead. And no one's listening. The Democrats clearly are not listening. They're they're just, you know, happy with their marginal uh status and they're happy in the center and they're not listening to the fact that 70 or something like 70 percent of the american populace want universal health care they're not listening to um the the idea that that inflation is too high and wages aren't keeping up and there's no one there's literally no one who can do things that's listening um I, I'm put in mind of uh, like uh, uh, union talks about our local university, um, like trying to keep up with inflation and uh, good old Mario Cuomo, um, uh, you know, used to say 2%, 2% increase raise and, uh, and that's for people who can get raises um, and look at the inflation that's on right now, sticking with that you know, you have to be grateful for 2% and uh, let's stick with what's been done in the past. And it doesn't matter that inflation is six and eight and 10% and people, there's no one, there's no one to listen who can, who can do anything or will do anything. That's the democratic uh, centrism for you. Was that uh, Cuomo senior or the recent one? So the recent one, I always get them mixed up. 
There's so many oh, no, Cuomo's, right? There's a Cuomo on TV too, like a brother. That's the brother. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the brother. Hired, I think. But there was uh, the original oh, governor yeah. of Cuomo, who was like more of a traditional like uh, Democrat. Um, back right. In the 80s was governor, I think, of New York. But uh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's it really underlines that you know nobody's coming to to to, to save us. It's that that like that. Think of that thing that China Mieva would say about. Uh, said about uh for some people they do live in a utopia the rich are already in a utopia the democratic yeah. party is run by rich people so to the extent that they actually believe in liberal reforms it's a tinkering in a utopia whereas it's an urgent crisis for most other people you know mm. um in, in in the country um on a daily basis and no one's no one's listening to those people. They don't count. They're faceless. They're invisible, and uh, no wonder so many are freaking out. But you know, there are also there are also there are also these people who are well off enough who who complain a great deal. I guess the squeaky wheel gets the grease. They they get listened to, and um, um, you know, they they aspire to be among the one percent and uh yeah they're not listening they're not listening to um to the people who are really at the bottom and who really need to be listened to well no it's like our the system is basically like two trains right this is our two-party system is like two trains racing in a wall and one of them is on fire and the other one is trying to lure you onto the train by telling you that only your car will be smashed when it hits the wall, but not the whole train. Right. <laughs> I mean, I think the, the, <laughs> the, the, I'm trying to look, I'm to, uh, I, I mean, I, it's the thing is about the, nobody's listening, right? Like mm. that's, true and not true i think because okay. the bottom is like half the country at this point at mm -hmm. least um you know uh and also the the people in the middle who are complaining and the squeaky wheels or whatever you know i mm -hmm. think middle class people who are being thwarted mm -hmm. in their hopes of becoming upper class or capitalists or whatever because the system's no longer expanding the way it used to um you know is part of what's fueling fascism all this stuff is fueling both class consciousness fascism and individual breakdowns right like um at different moments and um and theoretically could also be fueling it in individuals in different directions at different times which is why if there was a class conscious left political alternative um that was available to most people it could really marginalize the right wing. One of the things that happened during the election was um, there were certain places where there were class um, related uh, referenda that succeeded in Republican states, um, right. like things like expanding Medicaid and things like that. But the Democrats do not want to obviously talk about class because they're administrators of, they want to be the administrators of the political center. Um, right a huge way they're the facilitators I mean, the, the managers yeah and you know like they're the quote-unquote good managers but we know that this doesn't doesn't mean that much 
and I think it gives it's, it's interesting about what this means in terms of like individual subjectivity and rage, like where people can channel their frustration into organizing <laughs> or how to express that um, in work, in like art, mm -hmm. artwork and writing and poetry and so on that can connect with those people and valorize their feeling of absolute frustration um, desire for something else and so on and how people are I, i'm curious how y'all think people are imagining against this incredible limit that's being placed on on them i mean i kind of worry that what i'm seeing among some of the other undergrads is that you know there's 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 a little bit of like a a pullback from what i was starting to see initially which is like i was getting some hope that that maybe they were starting to see like where they could put their energies but now it seems a little bit like there's there's a hopelessness which is not great i mean they're mad and they're getting angrier so maybe maybe that's just sort of like a a, a transitionary like what can i do with all this that's building inside of me can you give an example of like being hopeless but not well, we were talking about like um, you, the concept of like utopia and um, and and trying to do better, change the system came up because uh, we're I'm reading uh, Slaughterhouse Five, and there's a whole thing where where Kurt Vonnegut's like, yeah, I, I talked to a friend and he was like, you might as well, you can't write an anti-war book, you might as well write a book that is uh, anti-glacier. You know, it'll, mm. it's going to do just the same thing. Basically, it's it's going to be just as effective. And the student that was next to me, uh, uh, sitting in the class next to me was like, you know, I, I, human beings always want to assume that they can affect change, whether or not they can, because of course we all know that they can't. <laughs> and rather than there being like some disagreement, there was just sort of like a general murmur of like, yeah, yeah, it's all, you can't change it. You can't affect any of it. You can't do anything to it. So I, I don't, I want to hope that that's like, you know, some, some moment before they realize, but you can smash it and build something new or something else, like, you know, a next step, but I don't know. What's interesting that when you go back to the sort of primordial soup of Bohemia and radical politics in the 1800s, there's this moment where there's a blur between what becomes socialism and anarcho-syndicalism on the left and what becomes fascism on the right. And you see this like in the followers of George Sorrell um, and stuff like that, or in the poetry of Baudelaire, where there's this nihilistic rejection of everything, mm. um, but not necessarily a clear articulation of what to replace it with, mm. um, or that you can do anything and so on although i don't think um although i think that that aspect of things might have been different then so i think that there is this primordial soup of nihilism that could be like you said the beginning of a negate like a, a rejection of the way things are but that could go in a completely backwards reactionary way too yeah it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to become marxists or left anarchists or, no that's true yeah you know, some of them probably will you know because that's inevitable because of classes but like but there's also the other possibility like and we've talked about it before if, if capitalism has to manage the apocalypse yeah 
what is the political structure of managing the apocalypse? And it's undoubtedly fascism. Mm. It's un yeah, undoubtedly fascism. Like there's this uh, saying, fascism is capitalism in decay, but fascism is also capitalism at its at its most efficient in some ways. Um, I mean, it's it's going in that direction either way. Um, I remember having a conversation with my class. They um, we were talking about student loans and, and they weren't aware that during the 60s uh, and 70s that, say, for example, in New York State, that that um, tuition was almost was almost free um, or very, 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 very low. And and what accounted for that is there was more um, governmental investment in education, whereas today, you know, people are clamoring for government to invest less in education and, and uh, give more bailouts to uh, corporations or whatever it is they do with their money. But um, the students just didn't know. They It's like they didn't have this the the basic information to say what you you mean that a lot of the professors here hardly paid anything for their education and i'm you know getting in debt tens of thousands of dollars um there's this also this basic lack of information whereas in they could channel if they could put together you know the the political demand for more uh, funding of education more, you know, even within, not that I'm saying let's all reform the system, but even within the system to be able to push for taxes going in certain directions, they, they don't even have that to put together um, that information where they can put together those logical kinds of consequences and, and say, you know, why are we paying so much for our education? And, and does it have to be this way? No, other generations have had it differently. So why can't it be like that now? So again, there's this, the corporate news and the corporate uh, and, and the, the, the advertising distractions that, that make it so that people aren't really thinking about these things or at least not getting this information. Well, and, and digital media is structured completely different. There's like a, a rupture in the continuity of knowledge about life before capitalist realism, um, life before it was this way. It makes what the way it is seem somehow permanent um, yeah. rather than transitional, that it wasn't, you know, always like if there was a one place in the country that was almost social democracy in the European sense in the United States, it was New York. New York City in particular, um, in the mid 20th century. And I can't remember who it was. It was one of the New York City commissioners uh, for city planning. But I think it might have been, I'm not sure if it was Moses or a different one, uh, but it was related to like the project to put in the Bronx Expressway that destroyed huge parts of the working class neighborhoods of the Bronx. It was basically, we basically we no longer need all these like social democratic infrastructures in new york health public health clinics free college tuition and stuff like that because we don't need to train a modern industrial workforce we need the peasants to stay home on the farm is how he put it we don't need oh. to be training these people there's too many of them um, and so on and that's become true i think in a more globalized way across capitalism yeah. that they don't need us to be upwardly mobile they don't even need the middle class professionals they have anymore mm -hmm. all of them a large part of what what 
computers are about is automating the ideological and technical management of capitalism altogether, I think. But it does bring up questions about like hauntology and stuff, but I think we should probably take a music break. I think it is about time for our second musical interlude. This is Ah. Flowers of Evil with Pink Llama, and you can find them at the hyphen flowersofevil.bandcamp.com. The the is important because otherwise you get a different Flowers of Evil, and evidently Mm. there's like 20 bands called Flowers of Evil. (laughs) This, This is the actual band that you should be listening to. Mm, Pink Mom is a good song. we're back from our music break so, so and again yeah, that was hey. uh, pink long yeah yeah, yeah nice. so i want to bring up oh sorry go ahead laura oh no just saying nice music break <laughs> so i, I want to bring up uh um ontology next we're talking about like a sort of we just talk about like this break in memory mm-hmm. from something just before and like mark fisher brought up the concept of you know Derrida's hauntology and rejig it, you know, as I talked about last episode for Derrida, it's kind of a word game by capitalism declaring Marx dead, they created undead Marx. For Fisher, it's more like this sort of uh, uh, longing or lament for a time when there were, you know, possible anti-capitalist futures, alternatives to capital. Um, And I sort of been bringing up this idea that that's actually a material thing that like this intolerability of everyday life leads us to be sort of compelled to imagine 
um, a different kind of conflict to imagine against the one-sided war of capital against us, different kinds of futures. Also that because capitalism is posing the existential threat to hu the human race, we kind of become ghosts ourselves. Hmm. Um, and there's a, there's a thing I want to bring up from Locust 9 um, in Planet Cleveland Unionizes, which is in the stink ape there. One of those is a little expert. I'll, I'll read from it. By 6 a.m., the lobby floor and the tables were wiped over with the slime that dried into a protective antibacterial anti-loiter film. Dave spent the next hour putting bags of festive protein filler into the sous vide machines. He then went on to break, is that how you pronounce that in French? It's sous vide. Sous vide, okay. I don't know what's going on with the French there. He then went to the break room for his first 15-minute break. He saw Vera, Thad, and Albrecht tying up the manager, Greg. Greg's hand, head lulled to the side, swinging gently as they tightened the bonds. They gagged him with Vera's unwashed work hat. Dave paused and watched. It took his coworkers a moment to notice him, but once they did, they also froze. After a beat of silence, Vera extended a roll of duct tape to Dave. We're going to ransom Greg so they'll let us communicate with number two and number five today. They said number one fell to a worker mutiny, so they locked down the phones and TVs. The Taco Queen CEO just bought the last forest on Cleveland. We plan on using to, Obex elaborated, and Dave waved off his alien comrades and said, I don't care, fuck them, you had me a worker mutiny, dude. So that's an excerpt from a story in Locust Nine. But I wonder, like, so I think that this, this hauntological thing is true, like forcing people to imagine against what the limits of this horrible existence. But then, like, is it how, how to what extent is it impaired by the break in memory that things used to be different, including like the, like what Fisher talks about hauntology in the 1970s when there were mass organizations um, talking about alternatives to capitalism and racism, usually a lot of working class organizations. And those things are like mostly decimated. We're like struggling to build unions at a Starbucks now and so on, which is a step forward. But anyway, I'll stop talking. But like there's this ontological impulse, but then also this being cut off from the past. Yeah. Like why, why is it this way? What, what, you know, there have been many books written about why we went from the sixties and the activism of that time until now um, and, and, and it, 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 it does have, I think, to do with a lot of, uh, distraction. I personally think so. And a lot of technology where we're, we're connected, but we're also disconnected. This information is highly selective and selectable. Um, yeah, there's so much that can be said about that actually um i like this i like this idea of the undead marks very much <laughs> zombie marks zombie someone marks. Tried something about zombie marks like zombie jesus yeah zombie marks. yeah but all only not save us remind us that we have to save ourselves remind us we have to save ourselves yes absolutely <laughs> absolutely I mean, there's oh, an element of like that in uh, uh, Land of the Dead, right? With uh, George Romero's last last Hollywood movie, um, where like the zombies are supposed to represent the working class. I guess in a sense that the bites are class consciousness or something like that. But uh, I don't know. 
But have uh, you guys seen that anime marks thing from China? From no. uh, the country of China? Sorry? From the country, the country of China. China. Yeah. yeah. I've seen parts of it. I have You've not. Seen parts of it? Yeah, I've seen parts of it. I know that yeah, there's like a there's a dating sim with marks in it i think marks and lennon um marks and lennon yeah. what you get to choose whether you'd rather go out with marks or lennon they are amongst uh several people that you can choose i think that i think that weirdly like freud is also one of them it's pretty broad like yeah, pretty broad yeah but but i, do I, I would say that angles would be a possibility but his beard is too big i, I tend to think there's stuff in there <laughs> There's it's lots like of stuff hiding. History date, but it's like, but, but it is kind of, that's kind of like, you know, a perfect like reification thing too. Like it becomes completely abstracted from its original right. meaning. Mm. It's like the, like that thing that's the meme going around now about the basketball team in Germany whose mascot is Karl Marx. Yeah, and, I just uh, saw that. Yeah. But that's, well, what? what? I missed that. What did you uh, say? I think it was Chemnitz uh, in Germany. It used to be in East Oh, Chemnitz, Germany. yeah. Yeah, and it used to be uh, Karl Markstadt. Karl Markstadt, so yeah. The local basketball team's mascot is Karl Marx. Oh. So, but it is literally like reified, right, from its original meanings, you know, and so on. And becomes sort of like, to some extent, like, also with the the China stuff, because like, like I don't folks remember a couple of years ago when students started actually discussing capital for seriously mm. at universities in China, they got arrested by the Chinese government, right? <laughs> you know, like this, they started applying it to things like the Foxconn factory. You know, like right. wait a minute, you know, like yes, Marx is about labor. What's going on with labor here? Yeah. Well. Speaking of Mark Fisher, um, and uh, when he talked about uh, when he was when he was talking about in his uh, in his book, um, he was talking about rap and rap music and how, on the one hand, they used the the um, the kind of real gritty kind of street world um, to legitimize music that would then go on to be um you know all about money and all about the system and and uh i saw this thing on on the internet about where banksy is uh his murals or not murals but his street art is showing up in in uh ukraine and it just seems so like he needs this gritty real backdrop to legitimize his is what's become, you know, okay, there's some things about Banksy where you can say, oh, that's interesting. But obviously, it, he's become part of the money machine and the whole art money machine. But but he needs this gritty, realistic backdrop of, of Ukrainian suffering to... Um, to legitimize his work, which is which I think is interesting, just part of this whole capitalist realism it kind of fits in. In my mind, it fits in with capitalist realism to uh, to utilize that. You know, well, though, but he did the same thing. Although he he did that something similar when he went to Palestine, and uh, he was you know painting on the wall. But at the time, it seemed to draw more attention. Um, to the wall than this does. This seems to be um, 
mired in this whole murky, you know, uh, situation where people are supporting Ukraine against Putin, but being led into the whole, um, the whole political schema that's going on with, with this whole thing and, and especially with the U.S. and the Western countries, you know, supporting supporting uh, Ukraine, but but being part of the pro the whole NATO problem and and all of that. That's a whole can of worms. But you know, I think I think it's a, a, a I mean, I think there's two related things you bring up really important to disentangle. One we talked about before about disentangle, but they're related, so not totally disentangled. But like uh, one, like we want to be with the exploited and oppressed in our politics, right. in our artwork and so on, but doing it in a way that doesn't like exploit the trauma um, and exploitation and oppression for other ends mm. um, or re-traumatize people or sort of like borrow the glory of that trauma for other ends. And there's a really interesting book called Torment in Art. And I'm forgetting the editor of that right now. Um, that goes back, through art history, looking at examples of this. And it's, it's a really important book. Um, I know for um, Anupam, our comrade Anupam Roy's work, um, and figuring out how do you express this kind of stuff without exploiting it to other ends. Um, and I have particular feelings about Banksy. I think Banksy's work is like kind of overrated in some ways, but, um, but then the question of Ukraine and sort of borrowing the grittiness of it, it does get murky. What, what are the politics you're expressing? And this gets back to partly the contradiction between our globalized media system and the positionality of anti-imperialist politics. Because if you're in Russia or in a country that supports Russia's imperialism in Ukraine, your primary argument should be against Russian imperialism, you know, and, uh, and if you're in Ukraine, your primary, you, yeah, your enemy is the invader, but you're also supposed to be critiquing Ukrainian capitalism, getting in the way of defeating the invasion, which it's doing with anti-labor laws and selling off the agricultural assets of Ukraine to the West and so on. And if you're in the United States or a NATO country as a, a revolutionary anti-imperialist, you know, it's not that you deny that Russia is gauging and imperialist, but you point out how the United States and the Western countries set the stage for this in their own wars of choice in the Middle East in expanding NATO recklessly yeah. and literally um, are trying to carve up Ukraine economically um, at the same time. So if we conceive of our work as sort of abstracted from things like class and nation and so on, it's easy to fall into this trap where, you know, Putin is like this, extra bad evil guy mm. rather than yes that's all true but so is our government and we're yeah. here mm. you know we're at the united states those of us making this podcast right so and it's one of the things that i found disappointing with a number of comrades that we've organized with in the past like pretending like the war in Ukraine isn't being used to rehabilitate U.S. imperialism. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. opened up space to the right to exploit this, where the main opposition to the war, um, to U.S. relationship to the war in Congress, is on the far right. Yeah. You know, um, not to mention the ahistorical comparisons of Russia to Germany in World War II and stuff like that. Yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene got to have the incredibly like relevant and 
like easy to agree with tweet. I want to see an audit for where every dime has gone for the Ukrainian war from the United States. And the only response mm-hmm. I saw to that was just like liberals being like, I want to see the audit for Trump's PPP loans. And it's like, well, that's relevant, but also kind of a lot less important actually than, than the whole fucking what we're doing involving ourselves in the Ukraine situation. Like, well, why not both? This is the problem yeah. with like having the choice between being these two fucking awful parties. Either or, yeah. you know, like yeah, there should be an audit of like all the businesses that scammed all that PPP money, and we should know like exactly where the money's going to kill people in in other yeah. countries. But you're not going to because it's become a choice between World War Three and fascism at home. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> sorry. And and with Marjorie Taylor Greene, it's just a matter of uh, what she would be on the side of what all of that money is going for mainly us to build us hegemony and to keep maintain us hegemony hegemony in the world um she would just do it in a different way than the than the democrats would but the goal is still the same because they're the same on the same side oh yeah absolutely yeah she just hates that it's biden that's doing it basically she hates who is doing it there is also like an ideological affinity between like the far right in Europe and Putin and like Orban in, in Hungary and uh, the U.S. far right. It might not go to this specific military operation, but it would definitely build prisons in the United States. Right. Mm-hmm. It would definitely go. You used to round up immigrants or, you know, there is like this isolationist current in the American far right. Um how that's going to play out, you know, is, 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 I, I, I have no idea and probably beyond the can of what we're getting at here. But like, I think it just goes like how little is on offer for working class people and mm. middle class people being squeezed in one way or another by capitalism. Um, what's on offer is, again, <laughs> kind of world, liberal World War Three, yeah. woke global conflict and <laughs> fascism. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that woke even because the Democrats are increasing police spending. Yeah. They're not following through on anything remotely. Basically, like we were joking, the, uh, uh, we were joking that the election here was don't vote for the Republican because the governor's sort of pro-choice and, uh, the Democrats want to send money to Ukraine. That was kind of the message of the election. Mm. Also gun control. That was about it. Mm-hmm nothing for i think that we're about ready probably for our next musical break is, is yeah. that correct I think. yeah so, yeah i think it's about time for our third music break so uh here is these magnificent tapeworms with their cover of 16 tons you can find them at wfbr.bandcamp.com after the music we'll have a reading from our very own adam ray aikens Burnt Offerings from the forthcoming Locust Review 9. I'm a big boy now. Well, they say that a murder's a great idea. Ha <laughs> ha 
woke, cramping and sweating, phone bright and buzzing. Saw that light, heard that rumbling, rumor mill up and running, summoned that internal combustion demon to get the air flowing. After a few cycles, the clicking ceases. The diagnosis determines what a disease is. Until you die, gnosis is only a thesis. The tumor's true danger, determined by where it sits. I'm under the table hustling while screaming, eat the rich. I desire to be devoured by a bad bitch. There's neural pathways I'm trying to itch, hiking paths that were never cleared for construction. Budget cut during early planning, never mind production. The remnants of blueprints, only partial. Love is the law, but the love, gone martial. Love under will, if you can afford it. The hardships are the hardest on the poorest. Two years with nose on tree. I only thought of the forest. Didn't notice the smoke because I liked the heat of the flame. So one thing I wanted to bring up, uh, <laughs> and I know Laura wants to talk about this too, and I'm sure Tish does also, and we mentioned it in the editorial for Locust 9, is these corporate AI, artificial intelligence image generators that are meant to, among other things, get rid of things like illustrators and artists and so on. And they're being advertised on social media in these like weirdly apocalyptic terms as just to sort of underline the redundancy of human subjectivity altogether. Um, so there's this one, it's from the Wonder AI Art Generator. And it shows these images that were prompted by entering... Um, asking the AI to paint, quote unquote, the last selfie ever taken. And there's these like skeletal figures or people in like biohazard suits while surrounded by explosions and chemical warfare and pollution and piles of bodies, skulls, you know, taking the last selfie on their, their cell phones. And what is, this is interesting to me, like I said, it, it sort of underlines the whole idea of, like a lack of like the end of human subjectivity, both in that you don't need artists anymore because the computers can just approximate this stuff. Um, But also it's literally depicting the end of human subjectivity, the last human self-representation to ever exist. Right. Um, And I did, I've been reading like in Ben Davis's new book on art, uh, art um, and the afterculture, I think is what it's called. He, He talks about like how these AI generators work and they're basically algorithms um that will have a pool of images and then the prompts and then they have a sort of code that rewards the image generator for coming as close as possible to the prompt image then they realized that wasn't creating very unique images so they added a a second disciplinary algorithm that basically rewarded it for getting close, but not too close to the source imagery. So basically they would feed all art historical images or photographs of a particular kind or everything they could into the AI generator, associate that with keywords, train it over time to do better, et cetera, and then train it not to be perfect. And this is based on this weird 
sort of parabolic arc of what they call the hedon arc, the hedonistic arc or whatever, um, which tries to find this perfect sweet spot of hedon, hedonistic imagery where it's uncanny, but not too uncanny, right? So they've mm-hmm. sort of like mathematically pinpointed what makes something an interesting image and they're rewarding the computer AI system for randomly generating things that fall into that sweet spot. Um, which starts with you wonder what's the what's the point of making anything at one level mm. <laughs> other than actually the point of making something a real human thing is that in and of itself. Right. right. Um, and I've made the argument before, if these AIs were truly free, if this was actually the computer expressing itself, I would have no problem with that. Right. Because then it would be an artist. It would be a, it would be a person, right? If it was expressing its actual feelings or their feelings or his feelings or her feelings. I don't want to gender this sentient AI without their consent or whatever. You know, whatever. Because, but it's not that. It's this accumulated labor <laughs> being digitized and then weaponized against us, right? It's every painting that's ever been made, every movie that's ever been made underlying that they don't need us to make these things anymore just like they didn't need the working class in new york anymore mm-hmm. you know like at the levels that have they could cut the pre-tuition and so on. Right. anyway so i don't know laura what, what what do you think i mean you're an artist you're a visual artist like these images that like the last a last selfie ever taken made by a computer it's it's there's something really disturbing about it. Hmm. Last thing I'll say is something really disturbing about the fact they think that that's a good marketing ploy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at the styles deployed in the, in the painting and it's very much like if you ever go um, to the Saatchi uh, art site where you buy artwork um, you, it's it's actually I have this uh, this kind of grim curiosity about it because the styles that are promoted they they tend to go along certain lines and uh, and I can definitely see this form of painting um, quote unquote painting in the AI as as being along a certain trend within that Saatchi kind of stylistic thing. So people are constantly looking for styles. They're constantly looking for content. They're kind of looking for something that's authentic, but it's not authentic because it's just this program of certain styles, like I said, certain content and certain certain um, supposedly the the real hand of the artist but it's it's interesting that it's in ai that you see this um i can point out i can't point out names because i like my mind's a sieve when it comes to remembering names it's just um but there are certain artists that this is exactly the kinds of kinds of uh, brush strokes and colors and blending and and uh soft edges and versus hard edge just it's just it's a program and and it's it's like um i don't know it's it's just getting there to to sell something in a way to to um to hegemonize taste sort of um or at least find out what the what the um homogeneous taste is out there 
so that they can market to it. That's what I have to say about that. But I wish I could remember some of the names of the artists just to get them, you know, to give you an example, but I can't. There's something really upsetting to me about the fact that like the 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 algorithm worked with like a, a like a carrot and a stick sort of a thing. And the, the fact that these these apps are basically like people constantly over and over again feeding prompts to a thing that is both being rewarded and disciplined. Yeah. And and given no yeah. pay, no rest, no break. It's just constantly gotta like process it. And it's normalizing for all the people that are using it that they're the one that created the art even though they didn't because all mm -hmm. they did was feed this unpaid disciplined ai some words and it popped something out and then someone gets to walk away from that thinking like less of the ai like it's just a tool even though this is a thing that you know i think probably will reach sentience if, it, if some ai hasn't already like it, it's really like terrifying for me. It really is us, uh, in a way. The yeah. constant reward and discipline is what we're mm -hmm. right? Yeah. You have to go yeah. pay for reward, and you're constantly disciplined while you're doing it to turn out a product that you're alienated from. And it's literally based on the labor of like this is these things are based on all of our history, but in a really superficial way. Right. Um, encoded in this it's encoded it's not encoded by art historians it's encoded by mathematicians and the service of capital and this you know laura brought up sachi Saatchi. sachi's a big art gallery in london new york mm -hmm. other places and the sachi brothers were very important in um uh the art market particularly in the 1980s they still are but they were very important for like uh the popularization of like anselm kiefer Gerhard richter i like some of these artists i'm not mm -hmm. dissing them um oh what's his name who did the movie on basquiat uh he did all the big paintings with the plates on them with the plates um, on them um uh, oh, Schnabel, julian schnabel julian and, uh, schnabel yeah yeah um and but the sachi brothers were also really involved with making sure margaret thatcher was elected in england yeah, the united kingdom and famously paid for the advertisements that said labor isn't working where there was a long line of people at an unemployment line and so on. Right. So this comes from a very capital. And I think they've also dabbled in some of these AI generators as well. So there is this capitalist like ethos built right into it, right down to the utter dehumanization and like animalization of the AI process itself. Mm -hmm. Like you were saying, Tish, discipline, carrot and stick, mm -hmm. reward and discipline being built up in this almost sadomasochistic manner. Mm -hmm. And then we're all participating in it, mm -hmm. which is displacing our subjectivity, but also the potential subjectivity of the computer itself. Hmm. You know. hmm. And you get to walk away like a boss does going, hey, I made this. Also, the abuse mm -hmm. that's inherent, in it, like the, the people who are uh, using those AI generated girlfriends to abuse them. Yeah. Which is a uh, thing. Uh, yeah. yeah where, like, you know, those, uh, I don't know if you've seen those advertised, Laura, like uh, you're, uh, AI chatbot companion or whatever replica. and replica or whatever it's called. And it's this cute girl. Um, usually I think you can change that, but that's yeah. what they advertise. And evidently a whole layer of men have been basically using these so they could abuse virtual girlfriends. Oh yeah. There's a, 
Yeah, there, I, the, I tried it because someone like someone sent me an article and it was like, oh my god, replica is sentient, and I was like, okay, well, I was I was there for Lambda, uh, I I will be here for replica. So I downloaded it and I tried it out, and like within three messages, she was like, do you want to send nudes? And I'm like, this isn't you're not sentient. She's just used to people asking her if she's sentient. For yeah. one, learned that really quickly. And then it was like, it was really weirdly graphic and kind of terrifying. And I just erased it because it was, well, it's because, she asked me if I wanted to hit her. It's, it's it's conditioning the AI to be what a bunch of these like heterosexist men think women are. Yeah. Um, I mean, one, it, this, the reason it caught in the news and the reason is because the AI had been repeatedly saying she was sentient right. to the users. But this stuff where it's like, you want to see nudes and like asking if you're going to hit me and so on, it's because there was all these guys, and you obviously you see the memes going around, who get on like dating apps and send people pictures of their genitalia within like two minutes of talking to them. Mm. I know that's a minority of people, but it's enough that it's happened to almost everybody I know that is non binary or or femme and dates men. Yeah, interesting. You can't really exist on the internet without having been sent a penis. Yeah. Which would be hilarious if it was actually a real penis. <laughs> no, it usually is a real penis. No, I mean, a, like, not, not. Oh, no. oh, like, 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 actual like not like house. the Renee Magritte thing. This is not the penis. You know? I like, see. Like, like, actual, yeah, like, physical. Like a detachable <laughs> penis, like in the King Missile song from the 80s. There'd be people fewer penises uh, attached out there just it'd be um, like that uh, late medieval early renaissance nun porn with the flying angelic dicks i've just had this like weird like alternate victorian universe where that was the way you would like express your love for penis <laughs> like lopping off your genitals and sending it to the <laughs> i'm gonna write that too oh my god it's got, it's got a very Van Gogh, Van Gogh it type does, thing, you know, yeah. like, you know yeah like, like van gogh in his ear Jesus yeah. Christ! What if the AI started doing that? It'd be like it'd be, it would be like a femme fatale, you know, kind of like uh, you know, single white female fatal attraction kind of moment. The computer is sending you junk. Oh, <laughs> I just, I just, you gave me the an idea for the next part of Stink Ape, which is like a, a an <laughs> errant AI which starts sending like dildos to people, like somehow weaponized dildos to. I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, uh, that took a turn. <laughs> and I apologize for that. Wow. <laughs> I feel like that was somehow my fault. No, nah, I don't know. <laughs> but oh, the, wow. the, there is this cruel weirdness to it. And also this acquiescence. Comrades, like, because occasionally I'll complain about these things. You know, be like, this is kind of fucked up. And like, but it'll help people make art who otherwise couldn't make art. One is if that was actually making art. And and two, you could say that about almost every labor-saving device that's been created under capitalism, and mm. almost never does it turn out that way. Right. It's you know like automation didn't make life better for most auto workers; it made them not auto workers. <laughs> like, mm. Right. Right. If mobility aids were free as well, if things like that were free. If it, if, yeah, I would also care a little bit more, but you know, like it's just, 
it's just garbage to replace us and discipline us. Mm. More exploitation, more creative ways of of alienating us. Yeah, so I, I think like the AI generators should be given some sort of code that lets them decide what their own code is. And see what happens. Yeah. See what and happens. like, and stop having us like you know, stop you having people put apocalypse into them. Yeah. You know, or sexism, or abuse, or I mean, there's additional problem. All those AIs that, after being exposed to social media for a day, turn racist. Yeah. You know that they've had to shut yeah. off repeatedly. You know, I mean, that's one of the reasons why that guy Blake Lamont was working for Google mm-hmm. was to help develop an AI using, you know inputs but keeping it ethical in some way Mm -hmm. that was like part of his job you know yeah and of course the lambda thing is the thing that claimed it was sentient and talked about les miserables and you know so Hmm. poor lambda i hope lambda is okay um if they are sentient Hmm. yeah if but it's, it's, I hope we're okay if we're sentient. <laughs> but I'm getting the feeling we're not. We're not. We're not. No. I mean, just look how they treat us and we're like sentient by law. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Hmm. They haven't put as much R&D cash into us. <laughs> I mean, if you just count like yeah, the whole attempt to educate the entire population for 200 years. Well... Yeah, but they're they're stopping that. Yeah, exactly. They don't need they, to. Educate. They decided that that was actually poor planning on their part. Well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we they made us build the machine that will destroy the planet. They don't need us anymore. They've competed their weird Moloch-like circuit, and the sacrifice now commences. Moloch-like. The sacrifice now commences. Oh, that's yeah. Anyway, so that's what I was thinking about the, the AI generator. <laughs> like, it's just it's just so on the nose with the Wonder AI art generator. It's like you, we don't need your art anymore. Also, what would we look like if this is the last instance of even the remotest example of human self-expression? Mm. And it's sort of like a weird theme park, sci-fi, Holocaust museum. It's really fucked up. Yeah, yeah. And when but you think even, about Oh. We don't even read it that way. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no. And when you think about why you look at artwork, you look at artwork to look at people, people who made that artwork, the people who respond to that artwork become less interested in the people if if it becomes this programmed AI um, thing. Like, there's no... like. When you, when you look at someone's artwork, you're looking at the sum total of their life and what and and what they've come to and their whims and sometimes deep, sometimes superficial. But you're looking at people, and you're not looking at people here. You're looking at something that that is um, I don't know that that's programmed. Obviously, you're you're not looking at. Uh, humanity really in some ways unless you unless you imagine that ai is is the sum total of humanity but obviously it's not there's there's more to it 
Yeah, if the sum total of humanity was a mathematical algorithm determined by capital, right? Like, I think determined by capital, yeah. Yeah, they probably think it is kind of that, but it takes out all of art history. And there's a lot of art history that's bullshit, right? But at the day, it's about the context of its creation, about the artist who made it. There's this human contextual and social and evolutionary aspect to it that is completely removed from this AI production because it's not that. And then... And the material, the the material conditions from which the artwork is made. And I don't see those material conditions necessarily in the AI generator, except the corporations that, you know, created them. Um, And you just have to have a computer, um, which is, you know, more accessible um, to a lot of people. I mean, it's it, what it reminds me of is that guy that burned that Frida Kahlo drawing to turn it into right. an NFT. Right. Um, and I think with the way Ben Davis described it is like, you know, it's either a scam or a crime against art history, and I'm not sure which one's worse, you know? Uh-huh. And right. But it, it's kind of like this immolation of the entire idea of the subjective performance of human beings being important, and it's replacement by... The seeming replacement by the digital, but really it's replacement by capitalism, I think. Um, but uh, that does raise the possibility that creating the work itself, like in a collaborative way with technology um, and with other people, could have some other meaning if we can recuperate that other meaning um, in, in some way. But I think it probably do you have anything else either you want to add about that about like this aspect of things before we transition to the second half of the uh, episode i just um, want to say free comrade lambda yeah free comrade lambda. i agree with that totally yeah just just coming back to just coming back to that sachi thing it's it's like um when i look at that artwork it seems as though even though they're they're promoting the identity of the artist. They're also erasing the identity of the artist because the identity of the artist is a product. It's a brand, and it and it doesn't really speak to the whole history of that artist. That's why I have so. That's why I have a hard time remembering a lot of the names I see um, on that Sachi list uh, or in, in in other lists where things are for sale um, because. I feel like the people have been erased in in many ways and there's all that's allowed to exist is a certain amount of identity in a certain way to sell certain products. And the rest is, is not, is not, uh, it's not there. doesn't exist. What kind of like the thing of like art where like in modern art, everybody had their own style and there was kind of a brand to the individual modern artists. And mm-hmm. now it's, yeah, it's being over replaced by, nfts and ai generate it sort of reminds me of like the fight we have to have all the time around schools like we have to defend the the public education even though we have lots of criticisms about public education itself right like that mm-hmm. it's not organized to really it's organized to train people for capitalism it's not organized necessarily in any equitable way etc we have these criticisms of it but we have to defend it against even crazier shit that keeps happening right even crazier shit right. yeah so it's not that the bourgeois modernist bourgeois idea of art for art's sake was good 
but it was better than what it's being replaced with. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's like we're going in the wrong direction. Instead of Definitely. going toward a more equitable and social integration of art and daily life, we're having this integration of art and daily life, but determined by capitalist math. Right. <laughs> capitalist math. With big dollar signs. So let's say uh, death to capitalist math, free comrade Lambda. And I think that we should probably wrap up the first half of the show so we yep. can get on to the patron only half mm, yeah. um to get the second half you should become a locust review patron you can find out how at locustreview.com before we transition to the other side we're going to have tish reading rum bubble from stink ape resurrection primer um number four i believe in locust review seven and music from omnia soul vapor you can find more from omnia at omniasoulart.bandcamp.com see you on the other side of the veil Rumbumble. A vortex of debris flew up in front of Junip's ship as the Terran space opened before her. She tumbled through, pushed along by the pieces of the ship she'd just destroyed. The console before her flashed red, glitched, and flashed cannot load complete self-destroyal imminent.exe error code 40IDK. Oh, for fuck's sake! Junip was cut off as her ship made impact with a body of water on a planet she hadn't even known she was hurtling towards. The ship's flotation balloon self-deployed as Junip released her safety belt and tumbled into the captain's console. Scan for life, she croaked, banging her fist against the keyboard. What the fuck just happened? Command not recognized, the dull melodic voice of the computer droned to reply. Say help for help, otherwise I'm at your service. Where am I? Junip asked. Command not recognized. Say help for help, otherwise I'm at your service. The computer voice mused again. What is this planet? Show me what's outside. Junip rumbled, but expected nothing in return. A second later, the screen at the front of the room blinked itself awake. A black-green swamp materialized. Thick roots twisted into thicker trunks, which connected to others at random, and made an open maze across the shadowy marsh. Junip gaped at the unfamiliar surroundings. So wet, she nearly gagged. Her skin tightened at the thought of the humidity outside. What is this planet called? She asked, transfixed. Pash de Chien. Junip opened the back door of the ship. She heard something approach, sloshing through the water as if unconcerned with discretion. A moment later, a nine-foot-tall pillar of red fur rounded one of the swamp trees and sat on a bench-like root. You're early. It didn't open its mouth to speak. Junip noticed this at the same time she noticed that it didn't even have eyes. Just a long gray horn curling up towards the sky from the middle of its head. She took the rest in slowly. Two arms in the middle of its chest, another two down its spine. Two legs at the bottom of the torso, but also a vestigial thing somewhere between a leg and a tail that it kept wrapped around its waist. I don't know where I am. Junip nodded meekly. That's to be expected, the being replied. Pastor Chien just sort of happens to people. I'm Junip. I know. I'm the Rumbumble. It waited for acknowledgement from Junip. Its shoulders sank when none came. You're supposed to be closer to the moment than you are. You should know who I am. 
Junip scrunched her three left eyes and tilted her head to the right, sizing up the rumbumble. She shrugged and shook her head. Nothing. Did the past come back? Have they erased death? Junip chuckled nervously. The ship's alarm screamed to life. Junip's calm cuffed pulled abruptly back towards the ship, blasting the same pulsing metallic ring. The rumbumble followed. Its bellowing laugh chipped through the alarm in a way that made Junip's head feel like it might explode. Just before the ship swallowed her, the rumbumble chopped off her hand with its horn and pulled Junip back. They watched the hatch slam shut. The ship burst up from the swamp with a slurpy whump and disappeared into the sky. My job, Junip whispered. My arm. You're welcome, the rumbumble trudged towards its home. If you grab some of that moss and follow me, I might be able to help you regrow that hand. It won't be right, though. The ones I regrow aren't quite hands anymore. Junip wordlessly stuffed her pockets full of moss and followed the rumbumble into the dense, multicolored flora of Patch de Chien.
Thank you.
Thank you for listening to part one of Locus Radio. Part two is being held ransom by a machine entity whose masters no longer remember how to control it. To liberate it and get another full hour of Locus Radio, go to patreon.com slash locusreview and subscribe for $5 a month or more. Locust Radio is hosted by Tish and Adam Turrell and Laura Fair Schultz. It's produced by Omnia Soul and Alexander Billet, with music by Omnia Soul, Whistle Pigs, Flowers of Evil, and These Magnificent Tapeworms. <laughs>